0: Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. This morning we're going to continue our series called Saints and Society in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you don't own a Bible, there's some black Bibles placed around the room. Please grab one of those Bibles, write your name in, it's our gift to you. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we're continuing this morning. Where we're gonna be going while you guys turn there over the next couple weeks is we're gonna continue looking at the saints' morality in society. Um, and then after that, on the day, March 1st, that we have our, uh, our family meeting, we're gonna be looking at the vision for our church. Many of you are familiar at this point with the mission of our church, which is make Jesus a hero, but what is the vision for that? What does that practically look like? How do we li- live that out, but also what is the vision for our church? Um, so we'll, we'll be covering that. Uh, that sunday so i'll be preaching a sermon about that and then from there we're going to uh have a standalone sermon and then we're going to go back into saints in society but we're going to be looking at marriage and sex for four weeks uh, as we dive in deep to chapter 7 of first corinthians so please stick around that's where we're going that's what we're going to be covering Uh, we're going to be diving into that in the weeks to come so this morning we're going to be in first corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 Real, Really short passage this morning, but really dense as well. So, yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word is truth, and that we can stand on the truth of your word. We thank you that you've revealed your truth to us through your word. We thank you that you're a God that, uh, that speaks. And you've communicated to us through your word, Father, that we're not left with uh, uh, the inability to know who you are, to know your character, to know what you're like. But you've also proven your likeness to us by stepping in through Jesus Christ. So Jesus, we thank you that you've stepped into humanity, that you're familiar with what we go through, with our brokenness, with our pain, with our trials. And I know there's many in this room this morning who have lost someone recently that are still grieving the death of a loved one, and we pray for them. We pray that you would minister to them this morning. You would come for them, that their grieving would be different because they have a hope in you, Jesus. We pray for our kids this morning as they're back learning about you, or even for the children that are in here this morning, that we would not think the gospel is strictly for adults. But we pray that the gospel would, would, would flood our children's ministry this morning. You would speak to and through our volunteers, through the teaching that takes place back there, that Jesus is elevated and made the hero, and that our kids from a young age grow up with the knowledge, Jesus, that you are the hero, uh, you, you are the hero, and that all of your word points to you. We pray that you would speak to us this morning, Father. We pray that our, our lives would align with your word. We pray, uh, pray that we'd be reminded of the gospel. Father, where our lives are not lining up, we pray that your spirit, you would speak to us, that, that you would calm us down, but you would also soften our hearts to hear and to receive. Speak to me, speak through me. I need your help, Holy Spirit. Fill this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The main point we're going to be looking at as we continue in on the series is the saints' objective truth. So it's the main point this morning: the saints' objective truth. And so we continue the series in First Corinthians, which is a letter; it's an epistle, and and it's occasional letter, which means that Paul was writing to uh, specific occasions, things that were going on, and so he was writing to them because he had spent about a year and a half with them, and then had left, and then had heard reports: this is what's going on in Corinth, and so he wrote a letter back to them. And in this letter he addresses many things in the first four chapter we looked at the saints unity and and the importance of what it is for saints and, and for the saints to have this corporate unity and, and and we we saw how destructive it can be when there's factions and when there's division inside of the church but then we move into the saints morality and we see what it looks like for saints to live uh, morally inside of society and and in in light of today we're not left with a subjective morality we're not left with trying to de- determine and decipher what is moral and what's not moral we have an objective moral standard given to us by God's Word. And so that's where we find ourselves today. Just to clarify a couple of things, is Corinth had a lot of similarities to the Pacific Northwest. There was a lot of things that we see in Corinth that we'll see inside the text today that is going on inside of the Pacific Northwest today. There's a lot of pushback towards God's Word. There's a lot of pushback towards authority. There's a lot of pushback towards uh, the way that God has designed marriage, the way that God has designed sex, the way that God has designed stuff through His... Uh, through his perfect transcendent knowledge there was a lot of pushback we have the same pushback today we have pushback to rules we have pushback to authority and that's the same thing that we go through that we face here today right now the other thing is is that we have to remember this paul is addressing a church why is that important because he is addressing believers he is addressing saints saint is not something you arrive at and if you do enough good works you serve your church in all the ministries that dana just laid out if you do all the right things and check off all the right boxes that you arrive at sainthood sainthood is given as a gift by god's grace through faith in christ alone you are given sainthood you don't make it there you don't arrive at it's not a title for the elite it is a title for those who have trusted in jesus christ holy and set apart is what it means it's what you are by faith then, what he's doing is saying, now this is what it looks like to live out of a saint. The gospel is not an all-affirming all, all gospel. The gospel is an all-transforming gospel, meaning that the gospel takes us where we are, but it transforms our lives by not leaving us where we are. We're going to look at that this morning. That's, that's the truth and the reality of the gospel, is that it transforms all of our lives. And so, just a quick definition for what objective truth is, is this is a truth by which we measure all truth including our feelings. A truth that is higher than our emotions and by which we can test or measure the truth of our emotions or feelings. Okay? A truth that is higher than our emotions and by which we can test or measure the truth of our emotions. And so we, we, we think about a courtroom. Inside of a courtroom you want an objective truth, something you can measure truth by. Something that's higher than, than feelings. No one in the courtroom would be interested in saying, I think they're a nice parent and they should get to keep the kids because they seem like a nice parent. They would say, what is, what, what is the objective truth? How, how can we see that they are nice, good parents? Or this person seems like a nice guy, I think we should let him go. Nor can you get on the stand and say, I feel like this. and Another person say, uh, says, I feel like this. We have to have an objective truth. Truth is valued inside of a courtroom. And I believe that truth needs to be valued inside of our culture for christians the word of god is our truth it is what we stand on it is the objective standard and measure to, uh, of truth when, when when we have debate about our feelings or something that's going on it is it, it is what god has given us he's revealed his truth to us to us in his word and it's what we build our lives upon this is the christian's standard and measure of truth it's what we appeal to that is superior to our emotions and to our feeling it, it is the highest truth that we have because it comes from god Himself, so that's that's it. If, if you're here and you're not a Christian, just know that's what I'm appealing to, and that's where I'm going. If you're not a Christian, you're investigating Christianity. We are we are honored that you are here. We love having you as a guest. We want GCC to always be a place that everyone can come and investigate what the gospel is and what God's Word says. And if you disagree with me this morning, that's okay too. But just know that what we're building our foundation off and and where we look for truth is God's Word, and the reason why is 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 It is an objective standard of truth. Let's just say hypothetically, hypothetically. Hypothetically, you and your wife are looking out of your kitchen window, and you see your kids on the trampoline, and one of them is ground and pounding the other one. Hypothetically. Just delivering a lot of punishment. Hypothetically, the older sister to the younger sister. And you scream out the window, hypothetically, what are you doing, and then you run out there to get involved and then they both appeal to what they feel was right. You can see where this is going to go. It's not going to go anywhere because the one says, well, I feel that I have the right to this and I I feel that I don't have the right to do this, right? And so that's where that goes or hypothetically, let's also say that uh, you're married to someone and you get in a lot of fights and arguments about communication because you feel the way that you communicate is right and your spouse feels the way she communicates is right. Hypothetically. Again, I'm just making it clear. Or sex or expectation, whatever you argue about. We can't always appeal to our emotions, but here's the problem. In the in the Pacific Northwest and so much more in culture today, the highest authority that people appeal to is our emotions. The greatest violation that you could possibly do is to do something that goes against your emotions. Something that, that, that you don't feel is right, and that's what we would say. And once you... Once you do that in a debate or an argument, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere for me to go. There's no one for anywhere to go because now you've appealed your highest authority, your emotions. That trumps all. And I'm saying that we have to have an objective truth that is above our emotions. Where does that sort of feeling lead? Honestly, it leads to stuff like Nazi Germany. It leads to racism. Why? Because they can feel that the best thing they can do is to obliterate all the Jews from the face of the earth. That's where that sort of framework and thinking can lead you to just feeling like this is okay or this is good or this is better. And so that's why we're looking at today a difficult subject, but we have to say that the saint's objective truth is the Word of God and it is the Gospel. That is what we have. That is what we stand on. That is our objective truth. So let's, let's read the passage. You'll see why it's not popular and why I'm not going to gain popularity by preaching it. So, Or do you not know, verse 9, You were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and by the spirit of our god let's look at verse nine and walk through this or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god let's just pause there right away that's not popular that there are people that will not inherit the kingdom of god that it says it explicitly the word of god says paul says do you not know this this is this is a rhetorical question where where, where paul's assuming common knowledge do you not know that the unrighteous will will not inherit the kingdom of God that means that there's categories of righteous and unrighteous and there's a category where the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God that's not popular what is popular and in our modern day is what's called universalism and that's that everyone gets to go to heaven regardless of how you live people who have abandoned an orthodox teaching that that is not true like Rob Bell and other people are saying that it does not matter how you live at the end everyone is gonna end up in heaven anyway that's that's becoming more and more popular this it's not that popular. And honestly, what I'm going to talk about, just to be super honest, I know it's not popular. But just, just for those people that are here that do call this church your home, and maybe you're uncomfortable by this passage already, I get that. Honestly, I understand that. I've been preparing to preach this all week. So I understand that. But let me say this, that we didn't set out to plant a church to try to be cool or relevant or popular and skip Around in the Bible to passages that are really easy to preach from, we decided that we want to be faithful to God's word, and that we want to be consistent to God's word, and we want to preach the full counsel of God's word, and so that's what we're doing today, and that's what we're trying to do. So, just please know that going into this is that's where we're coming from. So, <clears throat> right away, there's a group, the unrighteous. Who are the unrighteous? How do we know who the unrighteous are? I would say before we get into that. And before we look at what these nine categories are that, that, that Paul lists out, we should say this, that let's not jump to saying that, 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 uh, that someone's views are unloving. Because actually we have an objective truth for what love is in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient, love is kind, and endures all things, does not keep record of wrongdoings, and the list go on, goes on. We know what is loving. But we can't say just because you disagree with someone, or you disagree with someone's position on something that makes them unloving that's like me telling you that I think Fords are better than Chevy's and you go unloving I drive a a Honda Civic so I'm not advocating either way just to be clear Uh, and it's awesome (laughs) but I think we should be slow to do that I think we should be slow to say the man up there is a middle-aged white male I am aware of that but I think that we should say what does the Word of God say And I think that we should be okay disagreeing with one another more in our society and not seeing that as a sign of disrespect. Because I know there's people that go to this church, that call their churches home, that love this church, that just disagree with me. And I'm okay with that. And Rebecca McLaughlin says something. We have a slide for it here. I think this is great as we dive in. The disagreement is not evidence of disrespect. In fact, I debate hardest with the people I respect the most because I take their ideas seriously. Our society seems to be losing the art of debate within friendships, and we instead surround ourselves with people who think like us. It's often said that you should respect other people's beliefs, but that's wrong. What's vital is that you respect other people. We should be flattered when someone tries to change the way we think opposed, uh, uh, opposed to being offended since, <clears throat> since in that moment, we are treating someone as a thinking agent. I think we need to understand as we go into this, that it's, that it's a good thing to have debate and disagreement. It is a normal thing that some of you might disagree with me. But again, please don't say that because someone upholds What they believe the true and faithful teaching of the Bible is and what's been the historic teaching of that throughout the history of the church is an unloving thing to do because I would say the most loving thing that we can do is uphold what God has said is true in his word and look someone in the eyes and say this is true and God has declared that this is true In all of these categories in all nine of these categories we should say that and not say you're narrow-minded I sat down with a guy at a coffee shop coffee date and he said, Rick, problem is, is that this is literally what he said to me, is that there are no black and white truths. All things are gray. And, and, and so I'm like, hmm. The problem with that statement is, 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 should I take that as black and white? And the problem is, 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 is you would say, well, Christianity is narrow, n- narrow minded or it's, it's exclusive. It is, there's one way, it's through Jesus Christ. But to say it then the the alternative is what should i do well everyone should have the right to choose their own way well is that not also narrow-minded it's just a different form of it for you to say that everyone should get to do it this way and my way is better so i do think we need to engage this with some openness with some honesty with a lot of grace and with truth moving forward so let's look at these nine areas that paul lists out here Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the Kingdom of God. That is something we should read and go, oh my goodness, this group of people The people that do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Like that should sober us and and, and bring us to a a stance to go back and read that over again and say, whoa, what are these things? Because these are the things that are listed that it said if we do not do these things or if we are doing these things, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's look at them. And here's what I would say god did not give these things as we read earlier psalm 119 god does not give his word to be oppressive god is not an oppressive god he created human beings he's the creator of all things why would god say that this is how life is best because god is concerned with his creation and human flourishing god actually knows how humans will flourish how we will actually experience life and joy to the fullest and so jesus said i came that you may have life and have it abundantly god did not set this up to say here's some oppressive rules i just randomly thought of but he said i created you i created mankind i know what's best and in the first thing he says sexual immorality is not the best in other words engaging in acts outside of 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 the covenant of marriage between a man and woman is sexual immorality the acts that we do that have become normal in our culture The bible would say and god's word would say that's sexual immorality and for those that keep practicing something like that they will not inherit the kingdom of god that's just it why i I think even if you look at some of the arguments for people that 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 are advocating for sex before marriage and stuff like that is i think i think we should really look at that and go does that seem loving because what is said is that Common in our culture, we watch. I don't know why The Bachelor, Bachelorette keeps coming up, but uh, I'm honestly not watching it, just as a confession this season. Um, I, I think what bothers me about the statement that you should test drive a car before you buy it is it is based upon a conditional form of love. In other words, let me see if you can meet my physical requirements and that you will be good enough for me, and then I will sign off to love you. That, that, that to me, we go, yeah, that's normal, that's cool, that's become a normal part of our culture. And the Bible says that, that sort of commitment of, of giving yourself to someone comes after a covenant that says, I'm not going to walk out on you. I am here, I am fierce, my loving is sacrificial, devotional, that even when my emotions all fleet away and the electricity and the butterflies run out, and they will, ask any married couple in the room, that has been married more than a year, that I'm staying. I'm staying, and I'm sorry if this is too much, but if if you are sexually awful or uh, don't sexually fulfill all of my, my desires and my needs, that is not the foundation for me staying. My covenant to love you unconditionally is. I would say that leads to human flourishing inside of a marriage, inside of a culture, inside of society. What about idolaters? The next one on the list. What is idolatry? Actually, I would say everything on this list goes under idolatry because idolatry is commandment number one. Have no other gods before me. And so anything that we elevate into our life as a God thing, and, and, and we put all of our um, weight into that thing, whether it be a relationship, whether it be a job, a career, something, here's how you can know if you've made something an idol, even a good thing, is if it changes your emotions. If it starts to make you depressed or happy or sad or angry, if someone gets near it or tries to pull it away or take it away in your life, we can say that's probably been replaced as a good thing to a God thing. And it can't sustain that. It's not meant to hold that. Only God can hold the place of a supreme God inside of our lives that we can build the foundation of our entire lives on. And so when we do that, we would say that thing will will crush. And if it's a person, it's a person that will crush underneath that weight. But so will we. So we would say that is idolatry. I would say one of the biggest ways in some sense that the church could be at fault, the thing that we idolize seems to be, Dr. Preston Sprinkle said this, even as we get into uh, um, homosexuality in a minute, is that part of the promise is that we've idolized marriage and made marriage a, 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 a something of idolatry to where you arrive in life once you are married. And so what happens is you, people make statements like this, is like, have you found your person yet? Have you found your woman? You're like in your 30s. Uh, how come you haven't found someone? Like, what's wrong with you? As in, you're not going to arrive with the fullness of, 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 of life and with the fullness of joy until you find your significant other. And then we replace that for our marriage with Christ. And I think that can be a a form of idolatry that's putting a weight on something that can't bear that. What's next? Adulterers. Some of these are pretty just simple. I mean, you know when you've woken up with someone who's not your wife, you know? Um, Versus greed and, and reviling and stuff like that. Like Some of these are obvious, but we would say, and here's why this is important. The saints have to have an objective truth. Because if people start to come and say, well, I feel like um, that it's okay for me to watch pornography, my wife doesn't feel like it's okay, or I feel like it's okay for us to do this, and I feel like it's not okay. And some, and some people have said, well, well, we just don't think the, the, the word of God is authoritative, or it, it, it's not our truth. But, but then people would step into the office and say, hey, my, my spouse is doing this. Can you please talk to them? Then I would have to say, what, what measure of truth do you want me to hold them to? What standard of truth do you want them to hold into? to? Because we're looking at God's word, and I can tell you what it should look like for a husband to lay down and sacrifice his life in devotion and love for his bride like Christ has done for the church. That comes from the word of God. So when we look at this stuff, we can't just adopt the things that we like and then reject the things that we don't like. I think we need to look at it all and say, this is what God set up for human flourishing. Adultery leads to despair. All right, men who practice homosexuality. What does that mean i want to lay all my cards out on the table and 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 say this that i believe that 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 men who practice homosexuality is 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 something that goes against god's created design for sex inside of a marriage between a man and a woman those are my cards laid out on the table i believe that committing that is with these other things a sin i don't believe that it's a higher sin and I believe that there has been oppression and, and, and an elevation of like, this is the abomination of all sins, or this is the grossest sin, or this is the most vile sin. It is in here. In fact, there's three sexual sins and the other six are not sexual sins. But, but I believe it's something that we have to address and spend a little bit more time on given the cultural context that we're in, is here's the problem, is that with the area of um, uh, homosexuality or with uh, gays and lesbians or with the LGBTQ community, I want to say this that it's never ever ever the job of the church to convert someone to homosexuality to heterosexuality I think that's just a really bad caricature of what the aim is the aim is always walking people down the aisle and showing them that Jesus Christ is better than anything else in this entire creation The job is to lay before someone what it is to have a life of holiness. Because here's the thing. Doing these things on this list or homosexuality will not send you to hell. Let me be clear because it might seem like this is a contradiction. Doing these things, homosexuality is not going to send you to hell. Just as much as heterosexuality is not going to send you to heaven. Unbelief and a rejection of the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ is what sends you to hell that's unpopular I know or to not inherit the kingdom of God but here's what I mean by that is that at the end of the day the one thing that separates us from relationship with God is by rejecting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior it's a heart that is self-righteous and I don't mean self-righteous just like the Pharisees I mean it's a heart that says Jesus I don't trust in you and your works are sufficient enough for me and so I need to do something myself that would be a Pharisee or a legalistic way of approaching but the other heart that says Jesus you can't be enough for me in this life and so I need to add something else to you that is also a self-righteousness where you're rejecting Jesus and providing something else for your means of salvation and I would say that the sin underneath all sins is unbelief and a rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior but that is evidenced by the things on these on this list and living them out without a struggle If there's questions on that. we can talk to that a little bit more later, and what I mean by that. I want to say this. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to pigeonhole myself a little bit more and say this: that I grew up by a race, I, I grew up with a, with, with a racist father who used derogatory terms to refer to black people. I grew up uh, with a dad whose parents also would not let my mom, who's with us today, who's half Mexican, uh, stay in, in their house with them because of that when they were first married. I grew up in a household where those terms became normal, and one day I was confronted with it after following Jesus at 23, I believe I went home, and I was like 24, 25, and a roommate of mine who was a black man at the time asked if he could come home with me. Because uh, we were traveling to a fight up in Portland where he was fighting. And I said, sure. But I was stressed the entire ride home. I was, like, in turmoil. And then when, 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 when we pulled in the driveway, I just finally said, I said, hey, man, I just got to be honest with you. I grew up in a household and a family. That looks like this and that uses these words, and just so you know, like my nephew might say this. And so I was just, I was mortified. And I was met with a ton of grace by him. The next morning, I was woken up to my dad around the corner of the house shouting out uh, derogatory terms, and so I met him head on in the hallway, and I'm like, what are you doing? To which I asked if we could go to breakfast with he and his friend, and he said there's no way we'd have uh, his friend a breakfast, uh, a breakfast with a, uh, um, you fill in the blank. So, I was so proud of my mom, (laughs) but that morning, uh, uh, anyone who knows, my family knows this, that uh, Mama Reeves is the best cook, and she makes the best biscuits. That biscuit recipe is protected for someone's dear life. My wife did not get it until we were in a covenant marriage. (laughs) (laughs) But my mom stayed home with him and taught him how to make the Reeves biscuits, and it was like such a proud moment. Sorry, guys, I'll get through this. But I I was proud of her. I I was proud of my mom that moment. And I would say this, that I know that I'm coming up here as a small town country boy who loves to hunt. (laughs) And I meet probably every stereotype that that I have going against me that stands against this. But this is what I want to say with a lot of passion, that it is only by the grace of God and the gospel of God that I would say has destroyed that sort of culture in our family that has stood against what racism looks like and, and has countered that. The Gospel has done that. The objective truth of the Gospel has done that. And I would say, it is no less loving for us to not love, for us to not love God and love our neighbor. That means to love the LGBTQ community. It is no less sinful to, 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 to do what these nine things are than to not love people that look different than us, that are of different race, color, or sexuality. We should be inviting them into our lives and into our homes. We should be loving them. We should be loving people that look different than us. Rosario Butterfield, read her. She's awesome, well-educated, lived a lesbian lifestyle for years. And because of a pastor and his wife inviting her into her home day and day, or day after day, she is now someone who has accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior. And she would say that no longer does her sexual identity identify her, but Christ identifies her. That is what's beautiful. And the church has to be a place where we welcome all people and we love all people. We don't project an expectation on non Christian people who are investiga- investigating Christianity to live a certain way. The saints have to be loving and welcoming all people as we walk people down the aisle and point them to the hope of something greater that is found in Jesus Christ, greater than sexuality. I talked to a man this morning who's a part of our church community who struggles with this. Who, who struggles with, with, uh, with these desires, who struggles with same-sex attraction, who struggles with this, who's battling with this, and I, and I asked him, I said, what do you do? He said, at the end of the day, that I trust that Jesus Christ is more ultimate and better than all of my desires. That's what he said. My heart breaks for him, uh, my, my heart breaks for anyone, and my heart would break for the people that have suffered oppression by the hands of Christians. I do think that I want our church to be a place that welcomes all people, even if you disagree with us, and even if we disagree with you, let it never be said of our church that we are not people who wrap our arms around people, that love people, and then welcome them in as we teach them the truth of God's word. We will not collapse on theology. If we do, fire me. We will not cave and fall into liberal theology to say that it doesn't matter how we live. That's not more loving. What is more loving is to look people in the eyes and say, God's word has said this is true, and God is more loving than our emotions and our feelings. We can trust him because he's good. I don't want my post-millennial brothers and sisters to get excited, which is, is an eschatological view, which means the world is getting better, which it's not. That's what Ronnie Gogan believes But I I honestly believe this. I think there's going to be a resurgence inside of the church away from liberal liberal theology back to orthodox teaching because it can't work. Because if God has actually told us how we will actually experience life and joy in life to its fullest, then I believe that we should take him at his word for that. And so I say all that to say this, that... um, if, if there is someone in here, I think we have a slide for this. If there's someone in here and, and, and that's a struggle of yours and you've never been able to share that with someone or you've never felt that it's safe, I want you to know, like, I, I, I would love to talk to you. In fact, I think we have a slide. Here's my phone number. This is not for all of you guys to text me and give me your uh, critiques on sermon today. It is for, or preferences. It is, if you are struggling with that, please, let the church, as your pastor, I, I would love to talk with you. I would love to walk with you. I would love to meet with you. And I know I would speak on behalf of our leaders for that as well. So let's keep moving on. Verse 10. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Let's start with thieves. We would say pretty common knowledge. Thievery is going to lead to more oppression in our society as we still suffer from people. But greed. Do you know this? More than sexuality, Jesus talks nine, I think it's nine times more about greed. Because it's the secret sin. Here's the reality. Is it is pretty obvious when you wake up with someone who's not your wife. Greed is more hidden and I think it's more dangerous. In the Pacific Northwest, let me just be honest, there's a reason why one out of ten people don't give to the church ever, and it's because of greed. That's that's the reality. But we'll look at this list and go, got it nailing it, yep, did it all, did it all. Just like the rich young ruler and Jesus said, Okay, sell of all your possessions and come follow me, we'll say, Whoa, these are mine. I've worked for this this is all mine and so we don't live a life of generosity with our resources not just finances not just to the church but as a whole including our time and i would say greed is a destructive thing that robs us of the joy that generosity brings again not just to the church in giving here but to the world we see how delightful it can be to give good gifts to people that's why jesus talks so much about greed it's very hidden drunkards again i've said this and i know i made jokes out of this reality i've never met the person who was sitting over a toilet throwing up and declaring that he really won up god on this one i'd say that we understand that getting drunk doesn't lead to a flourishing lifestyle but people yet abuse alcoholism and find their satisfaction in that instead of christ what about revilers and swindlers? Not common language, so let me define them quickly. A reviler is to revile, is to criticize an abusive, listen, in an abusive or hostile way, or to spread negative information about someone. Being critical of someone in thought or word. If you are reviling someone, you are being critical, you are criticizing them in an abusive or hostile way, or you are spreading information about them in a negative sense. Those are revilers. What about a swindler, a person who uses deception to deprive someone of money or possessions? In other words, human flourishing will not happen when you manipulate someone or deceive someone to get what you want. Taxes, write-offs, let's be honest, that load of old clothes you dropped off at the Goodwill was not worth $1,500. So when we write that sort of stuff, that is what swindling is. These are all the things that God's word would say, what? that those that practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of god that's a that's a big thing meaning meaning what that i believe this to be true when you have put your trust and faith in jesus christ you are a new creation but please know this in on this side of eternity we will struggle with sin we will battle with sin but our lives should be marked by struggle and battle. Never giving into it. Never saying that I'm just okay with it and so I'm going to live this out. I think that, that absolutely, and this isn't my thoughts, I would say a, a perseverance that is inside of the saints is something we should be marked with. People who wrestle with sin are, are struggling with it are wanting it to be put to death in their lives Are meeting with community or meeting with people and, and and are taken serious that it says that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of god there's this there's this there's this wrestle and this struggle i think we should celebrate that wrestle and that struggle and praise god that it exists because until 15 years ago i that that struggle did not exist in my life i think we should celebrate that but i think that needs to be the mark that we wrestle hard Which means we are going to need community and loving friendships to remind us of who we are in Christ as we wrestle and battle. But I think our lives of the born again, of, of those saved and redeemed, should have a wrestle and a repentance. Because we desire what? Look at verse 11. This is what's beautiful. Anyone that just skips over this whole passage runs the risk of skipping over, I think, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. Memorize this. Please memorize this. It is so good. Look look, look at this. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. Some of you were these things. But look at this. This is huge. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the gospel. The gospel is good news. That's what it translates. It is the best news ever. The Gospel's not something you can do anything about. It's what historically, objectively happened 2,000 years ago with a person and the life of Jesus Christ. And this is what's objectively true about us. This is why the saints need an objective truth. We need this. You need to know that you were washed. That you were sanctified and that you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. I struggle daily to believe That it's not something I'm doing that is making myself right with God. I struggle to feel vile and gross. I struggle with shame and I struggle with guilt. But when those feelings come up, I'm reminded of the objective truth of Scripture that says, Rick, you were washed. You are sanctified. You were justified. What does that mean? Let's quickly look at the words. The, The Greek word for wash actually means to rinse or bathe or wash away. And so, the, the reality is, is that sin is not something that lives out in the world. Sin is something that lives inside of us. And there's no amount of bathing that we can do. There's no amount of washing our hands. We, 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 we see this in um, Lady Macbeth. And we see a woman who is responsible for uh, killing King Duncan. And uh, the, the, the doctor and uh, uh, the nurse are watching her wash her hands for like an hour, and she's screaming at the spots to go away. Because she's riddled by the guilt that she feels over the death but but there's no amount of washing she can do to to cover or deal with what's going on internally and we would say sin is a cancer a terminal cancer that spreads we can't wash it away we can't deal with it through an external action that's called religion at its finest something has to be done to us something has to be done on the inside it has to be dealt with at its core internally that's a washing so what Christ does is He walked to the cross. He walked to Calvary with a life of clean purity in every sense. In every regard, He was pure. And He took that with Him to the cross. He took His life of complete purity with Him. When we put our trust and faith in Him, what, he, what first happens is there's this washing, this removal that happens, where internally all that's wrong with us is removed from us. And then what happens at the cross is it's placed on Jesus. So He takes our vile, gross sin and the ramifications of it, the consequences for it, which is death, the wrath of God. He takes it and He places it on Himself. But then here's what He does. Look at the next word, holy, or sanctified, which means holy. Please look at the passage up on the screen. This Greek word for sanctified is hagiazo. You guys can remember that if you want to remember a cool Greek word. Hagiazo. Here's what hagiazo means. Hagiazo means holy and hallowed and set apart. This same word Jesus uses in the Father's, uh, or, uh, I'm sorry, for the Father's name and, and when he's teaching his disciples how to pray. Matthew six and nine says, "Pray then like this. Look at this. I love this. Our Father in heaven, hagiazo, be your name. Our Father in heaven, hagiazo, hallowed, holy, and set apart is God Almighty." And yet when Paul refers to the saints, he uses the same word that Jesus refers to God in. And so in other words, when you're washed, something is at that moment supplied and given to you. And it sounds almost blasphemous to say, but the holiness of God, the full measure of God's holiness that Christ had, he gave to us. He imputed to us. He put on us and in us. We are made holy, just as holy as God set apart. We don't have a junior varsity version of holiness. We have Christ's fullness of His holiness. That is mind-blowing, but then it says that we're justified. Here's what this means. That you are declared vindicated, righteous, guiltless, and sinless before God's, Before God, but more than that, by God. God declares you this washing and removal, this adding of holiness, and now God says righteous, guiltless, sinless, vindicated, freed. That is God's declaration for the saints always regardless of how we feel over our lives. This clicked for me and I've asked in the past to use this as, as an example. A couple years ago we sat in the courtroom as Betsy and uh, um, Caleb's uh, now daughter Mercy was, was uh, awaiting her trial to be legally adopted into their family and at the time her birth certificate said baby girl so her name was Baby Girl because she was left by her mother and then she was brought into the Rexius household and under their care and we sat there and we listened as the judge made the declaration as she made it authoritative and said this is now Mercy Rexius. What happened? It was illegal declaring that this is her new name and this is her new identity. She's their child, that is authoritative. When God says that you are justified, that is more, th- more authoritative than any courtroom on this human earth. It's irreversible, it's unchangeable because it was given by a God who never, ever goes back on his word or changes his mind. When you are loved by God, you are secured by God, you are held by God, and you are held by the promise that he will never turn his back on you or walk away from you. The, ma- the, the measure of holiness that God will choose to see you is the measure of holiness that Christ gave to you. That is how God will forever see his saints. And so Paul's passion is that we live out of that identity and that the gospel transforms all of our life and that it sinks into every area of our life through the Spirit's work and it transforms the way we live. That when we look at this list and look at these things, we say, I don't want to do that anymore because it's not consistent to who I am in Christ. I don't want to use language that is derogatory to people. I don't want to act in certain ways because that is not who I am. I am holy and so I want to live into the holiness that Christ has given me what is our response just a couple things I'm wrapping up right here I said this already I'll say it again when you struggle in your daily lives to feel shame and I know we do in guilt and these things please know the objective truth of God's Word is it trumps anything that you ever feel and so when you struggle to feel a certain way then we look at God's Word and we say this is who God my father has said that I am I am washed and I am holy I am pure and I am righteous and he has declared that about me next we struggle we don't collapse or give way to a liberal theology or anything like that but we struggle with sin and, 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 we, and we might struggle, people that don't like rules, throw myself in that category. We might struggle with God's word, but we, we, we go, God, you are good. And if there's something I don't understand, then the problem is not with your word, it's probably with me. And so we submit ourselves to the rule of God's word in all of our lives. Next, we grow at loving our neighbors that's the summation of the whole god, uh, god jesus like let me make it easy for you love god love your neighbors who, who are the neighbors he was talking about your enemies people that don't look like you love people well let that be said of us invite people into your homes and into your lives that believe different than you that look different than you and last we should guard ourselves with a cultural with, sorry, with a communal hermeneutic. What I mean by that, big words, is that we need to be in a body of believers in community at a deeper level that is submitted to the Word of God so we can say, hey, I know what's true about you and you're living in such a way in a manner that is not true. Here's who you are and I'm going to walk alongside of you to help you live into the purity that Christ has given you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be a community that loves well. I pray that we'd be a community that's safe to disagree well. I pray that we are a community that is submitted to your word unashamedly because you are good, God. And you know what's best for our lives. Thank you for the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Let our lives be lived in such a way that we daily walk people down the aisle to you, Jesus, the ultimate groom. Amen.